the moment, one of your non-Christian friends, a very close non-Christian friend, asked you a challenge. Can you convince me that your Christian faith really indeed is the one true faith? How would you go about in approaching that endeavor? What would you attempt to do in trying to prove to your friend that your God is the true God and your faith is the true faith? Well, depending on the type of Christian that you are, you have a wide variety of approaches at your disposal. For some Christians, they may take a more philosophical approach. Well, they'll talk about things like the ontological argument, Pascal's wager, the warrant of Christian belief, you know, some sort of rational approach to somehow justify and prove that your faith is indeed the true one. Other Christians instead will take a more great examples approach where they'll spotlight amazing believers who in the name of Jesus did some great things for this world. Whether you're talking about someone like Mother Teresa who spent her entire life caring for the broken, the forgotten of those in Calcutta, India, or maybe William Wilberforce, the great British parliamentarian who caused the abolition of slavery in England and really sparked the abolition movement in the whole world. And then there are other Christians who instead will take a more personal approach. Well, they'll give their personal stories, their personal story uh, testimonies of how God personally changed their lives radically and positively impacted their loved ones. All of these approaches, all of these argumentations are all valid, and they do work depending on who you approach. But if you take a look at our passage for today, Jesus employs none of them when it comes to how the world can know that the true God is truly him and his church is really the true faith. Instead, he employs another approach that I call the argument of love. The argument of love, and what that essentially means is this. The world will know that our faith is the true faith, according to Jesus, when Christians love one another. One more time. The world will know That our God is the true God, our faith is the true faith, when Christians are loving one another. Now you hear that and you're thinking, Pastor, how does that comport? Well, let me explain. But first, we're continuing a sermon series that we just kicked off recently entitled The In-Person Church. And the whole point of this series is to lovingly challenge the growing conclusion that so many believers today are having, hopefully none of you, that this whole idea of isolated, insulated church that's all quarantined and in the comforts of your home is not fine and therefore not something that you should prefer or habituate yourself into. No, this series is going to want to challenge each and every one of us to not fall into that mindset, but instead see the importance of gathering together in person, in presence towards one another. And the way we're going to show this is by looking at the New Testament commands that are characteristically known as the one another commands. And as we take a look at the various one another's in the New Testament, you'll come to see that there is no way we could ever possibly obey these commands without the context of being together in person in the context of community. And today we're going to take a look at what is arguably considered the greatest one another command that our Lord has given to us. And that, of course, is to love one another, to love one another. And as we take a look at this passage and this command, we're going to see three things about the significance of this particular command. First, we're going to see why Christians loving one another is so important. Then we're going to talk about what Christians loving one another assumes. And then we're going to end it with how Christians can actually love one another, why it's important, what it assumes, and how to actually pull it off. You ready? Let's begin with the first point. Why Christians loving one another is so important. So our passage for today kicks off a portion of the New Testament that Bible scholars call the farewell discourse of Jesus. 
And the reason why it's given that title is because of what we read in verse 33. Follow along as I read. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Okay, come on back. Here, Jesus has just dropped a bombshell of a news to his disciples. He is telling them, in the very near future, get ready, but I'm about to bounce. I'm about to leave you guys. And where I'm going, you cannot come. You cannot be with me. We're going to have to separate, sever this relationship. Now, imagine for a moment, if you're one of the disciples of Jesus, From their standpoint, for the past three years, they had immediate and direct access to their Lord, to their teacher, where he counseled them, shepherded them, discipled them, nurtured them, loved them, served them, blessed them, okay? It was an intense, intimate interaction. You see, one of the things that you need to understand that in the ancient world, there was no more intimate of a relationship than that between a teacher and a rabbi. Even the relationship between husband and wife back then was not nearly as intimate, as nearly as affectionate as that between the teacher and his disciples, which means the disciples of Jesus, with the exception of one, you know who that is, right? The betrayer, Judas. The disciples of Jesus loved Jesus. Christ. They adored Christ and they wanted nothing more than to spend all their days of always being near their Christ. They loved Jesus with all their heart and soul. And here's the thing, Jesus knew this about them. He knew this is how much they adored him, evidenced by what he refers to them in our passage. What does he call them? He calls them what? Little children. Little children. I mean, that phrase itself kind of evokes in our own imagination of that little child of ours clinging to our leg, begging us not to go to work or begging us not to leave them at preschool or nursery, right? It's like, Mommy, don't go, don't leave me. This idea of an affectionate bond that cannot stand the idea of being separated from it, that's what being connoted with this phrase, little children. And yet Jesus says, knowing this, still says, I got to go. I got to go, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, you hear that, and you're thinking, why would Jesus do this? Why would he separate himself knowing the conditions of his disciples' heart towards him? Well, we begin to get an answer in the middle of verse 33, where he says this phrase, you will seek me. You will seek me. Now, that statement is not only Jesus foreshadowing what the disciples are going to do in the near future once he's gone. Actually, he's giving us a picture of the disposition of the disciples' heart and what should really be the disposition of all of the disciples of Jesus, including you and me. You and I, as followers of Jesus, should always have in our hearts one main goal in life. We should always seek more of Jesus. We should always want more of Jesus to where no matter how much you love him now, you want to love him more tomorrow. No matter how devoted you are now, you want to be more devoted to him tomorrow. No matter how deep your relationship with him is now, you want to go deeper in your relationship with him tomorrow. You see, that is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's where you make it your main mission of life to get more of Jesus, not more of money, not more of love, not more of status and fame, but more of Christ. And it's for that reason Jesus says, I got to go. I got to go for that very reason. You want more of me? Okay, let me go. Now you hear that and you're like, that doesn't make sense. Well, let me see if I can clarify. Um, right after dropping this bombshell of the news that he has to depart, 
Jesus follows up with these next words in verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. We're going to keep coming back to verse 34 because this is such a rich verse. But for now, I want to point out one thing. Jesus is telling his disciples, look, if you really want more of me, if you really want to deepen your love for me, then you need to have more of other Christians and you need to deepen your love with other Christians. That's why I got to go. So you can focus on one another. So that you can focus on actually learning to love one another. You see, so often we think when we read this verse that Jesus is inhibiting or frustrating or, or sabotaging his disciples' attempt to get closer to him by actually leaving. But Jesus says, no, the opposite is true. Jesus is telling us in this passage, and the New Testament constantly echoes this idea, that if you want to go deeper with Jesus, you have to go deeper with other Christians. If you want to broaden your intimacy with Christ, you need to broaden your love for Christ with other Christians as well. And this is something that I feel we really need to grasp because so often in our individualized mindset, we think that the most healthiest, robust relationship with God that we could have is one that is privatized, the one that is kind of isolated. And of course, in this quarantine time that we're in, we think, oh, what a perfect context for me to finally get close to Jesus. It's just me, my study Bible, my nice journal, my favorite podcast, my favorite Christian authors, and me and God, we're good, right? Wrong, wrong. If you want to deepen your love for the Savior, you must deepen your love for those whom he has saved as well. If you want to have a deeper love for Christ, you must have a practical outworking of love for Christians. Take a listen to how theologian Klaus Isler, what an interesting name, Klaus Isler. Listen to what he says, quote, If we wish to keep on moving toward a full-orbed friendship with God, we must grow in our relationship with others within the body of Christ in order to stretch our emotional and social capacities for befriending the God who is love. Close friendships with other Christians are essential for all believers, not only for the joy they give to us, not only for the contribution they bring to Christian community, but also for the help they provide in relating to God. If we do not increase our experiences of intimacy on the human level, we limit the kind of intimate relationship we can experience with God, end quote. Here we see why Christians loving one another is so important because it's when Christians love one another that you get access to the very means of increasing your love for God himself to where you can actually fulfill your main mission in life, to seek Jesus more. Okay, so with all that said, here's my question. How in the world, Christian, do you hope to live out your main purpose if you do not put yourself in the social construct necessary to have that deepened relationship with Christ by never coming in the context of in-person community? I mean, no one in here, I hope, would say with a straight face that you can maintain or enhance the intimacy within your own family by limiting your interaction with your own family by a digital or online platform, right? I mean, if there's anything that COVID has taught us is how our family lives have been disrupted because we cannot be in person in the presence of our loved ones, especially in some of the most crucial milestones and moments of their life, whether it's when they got engaged, celebrating a birthday, or sadly saying goodbye before they passed on into glory. 
If we can't have the enhanced intimacy within our own family, within a digital construct, what makes us think we can do that within the family of God? Here's the point I want you to understand, okay? If you want to deepen your love for Jesus spiritually, you need to connect with his people physically. Let me say that again. If you want to deepen your love for Jesus spiritually, you must connect with his people physically. You get that? If you do, then you're ready to move forward in actually attempting to loving one another. And the reason why I say attempting is because it assumes that there might be a false attempt. There might be a failure in your attention, right? Why? Because there is a crucial assumption that you and I need to make before we attempt to love one another as Christians. And if you're not aware of this assumption, if you don't have it in the forefront of your mind, you will fail in actually loving one another. What do I mean by that? Well, let me explain by going to my next point. Let's circle back to verse 34. As again, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, maybe because this is a very familiar set of words that we've heard growing up in Sunday school, that we can easily miss how profound Jesus makes a key statement here. So let me read it again with emphasis in the hopes that you'll catch it the second time around. One more time. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Did you catch it? Just as I have loved you. Here Jesus is saying, Christian, when you want to love one another, make sure you love each other the way I have loved you. Now, with that in mind, here's the question. What did Jesus had to be willing to face? What did he have to be willing to endure and experience in order to love us? Or if I could put it another way, in order to have a relationship with us and to maintain this relationship with us, what did Jesus have to be willing to accept in order to love us at all? Well, we don't have to guess, really, because the Bible gives us a very clear answer to that question. Take a listen to what it says in Isaiah 53. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. It turns out, in order for Jesus to love you and me and the church, he had to be willing to suffer, right? He had to be willing to suffer rejection, betrayal, hatred, loneliness, humiliation, right? In other words, Jesus had to suffer in order to love us. And that, Jesus says, is how you need to prepare yourself when you come to love one another. This is the assumption of Christians loving one another. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be pleasant. It is going to be hurtful. It is going to suffer. You know why? Because Christian love is suffering love. Let me say that again. Christian love is suffering love, okay? To where as you attempt to love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not going to be the most enjoyable experiences because the types of people you go to church with that you do life with can be some of the most weirdest, annoying, ridiculous people. Amen? Who of us in here cannot share our own personal stories, war stories almost, of the ways in which we've been scarred and wounded by those who share our Savior's love? Let me give you a basic profile of some annoying Christian profiles, personalities that I've encountered in my life as a pastor and as a Christian. First, 
You have Debbie Downer. Deborah, are you here? Deb, please, don't take this personally. We love you. This is not referring to you, okay? But this is just a general stereotype. Debbie Downer, who is she? Right? This is the, oh, woe is me, the moaning, complaining person who always feels like that their life is a mess while everyone has their life together. And they always feel like everyone else has luck. They're the ones who's always cursed. And they're essentially the person who functions as the leech, just sucks out all the life of the room and the people in it. That's the Debbie Downer. Again, that's not you, okay? But that's Debbie Downer. And then you have who? Stubborn Stephen. Who's Stubborn Stephen? We don't have any Stevens here, I think. If you're visiting and your name is Stephen, I apologize. Any names that I'm about to say, I apologize, right? Stubborn Stephen. Who's Stubborn Stephen? Stubborn Stephen is that person who cannot be corrected, who can never be challenged, who can never receive any constructive criticism because as far as he's concerned, he is never wrong, he's always right, and you're never right, you're always wrong. And so he is never willing to change, to be challenged, to be moved in any positive direction in life. And then related to him is Judge Judy. Who is Judge Judy? This is the person who knows it all and thinks they know what motivates you, what you're thinking. Even though no human being is capable of such a thing, she thinks she is. And so, so she feels she's, it's, in, it's in her rightful place to always scrutinize and tell you what you're doing wrong and always seeking to correct and counsel you. But don't you dare ever try to correct and counsel her. And then you have Nosy Rosie. Who's Nosy Rosie? Well, this is the girl who always wants to know what's going on. The 411, right? Getting the gossip, getting all the inside uh, scintillating news behind people, not for the sake of praying for them or helping them, because they just want to be in the know. And then you have Lane James. Oh, Lane James. This is the brother who makes promises but never follows through. And if he never follows through, he always makes excuses, right? Or when he does say he's going to do something, he flakes out five minutes before, gets that call, PJ, I'm so sorry, I can't make it. I got to uh, do something, and he hangs up, right? Lane James, odd Todd. Ah, Todd is the person who's just weird. He looks weird. He dresses weird. He talks weird. He even smells weird and has no understanding of how he makes people uncomfortable because of his oddness. And then you have hedonistic Patrick along with his twin sister, Worldly Shirley, who on any given Sunday is giving praises to God, singing the loudest with tears streaming down, but any other day on any, besides any given Sunday, they're hanging out, hooking up, partying up with as many people, with as everyone as they could possibly meet, right? Living an inconsistent Christian life. Yes, indeed, we live in a world filled with churches made up of people that are difficult to love. Difficult to love. And Jesus knows this, okay? Which is why he says what he does. Love one another just as I have loved you. Love one another to where you're ready, you're prepared, and you're willing to suffer. Why? Why in the world, Jesus, are you telling us to suffer just so that we can love one. Why? Why are you telling us to put ourselves in that kind of a situation? Jesus says, so that the world will know that I am the true God and your faith is the true faith. See, Jesus is trying to tell us something very startling. He says the world will notice the community in the church because it's the kind of community that can never happen outside of the church. Because when the world sees the community of the church, they're going to be wondering, wait a minute, why are these types of people hanging out? Why are they fellowshipping? Why are they loving? Why are they forgiving? Why are they being kind to each other? Right? Why instead aren't they canceling each other, you know, 
suing each other or at each other's throat physically. How is this possible? And the world is going to be astonished because as far as the world is concerned, that will be just as miraculous as a person walking on water or coming back from the dead. Here's what you need to understand. Christian love is not only a suffering love, it is a supernatural love. It is not a normal love that happens outside in the everyday occurrences of the world. Christian love is a supernatural love, and anything supernatural will capture the attention of the world because it'll be kind of the community that does not happen in the world, and yet the world desperately needs. And I gotta tell you now, folks, this world needs this kind of community to be present with the way in which we're so racially divided, how there's so much political infighting, how there's so much clash amongst cultural and ideological differences, the world needs to see a miracle. And that miracle, according to Jesus, is when Christians are loving one another because they're willing to suffer in order to have that love with one another. Now, I know you guys are going to hear that, and you're like, Pastor, you might as well just tell me to walk on water, (laughs) right? I tried I've been a part of many communities. I've been attempting in this own community to try and love. And you're right. It's just as difficult as me trying to turn water to wine or to walk on that water or to just cause a bush to go on fire and not get concerned. How do you expect me to do a miracle? Well, yet Jesus says you can. How? Well, that leads me to my final point, how Christian love is possible. Let's circle back one last time. Verse 34, I want to read it one more time. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. You know, when I first read this uh, verse of Jesus, and maybe you might have picked up on it, I really felt uncomfortable by what Jesus was saying because initially it seems like Jesus is wrong, right? Whoa, Jesus is wrong? Yeah, it sounds like he's not being factually correct. How so? Well, because he says, a new commandment I'm about to give you. And what is this new command? Love one another. Now, here's the problem with that statement. Well, suppose the problem. If you read the scriptures that predate the birth of Jesus, i.e. the Old Testament, you'll come across many commands in the Old Testament where God commands his people, love one another, love one another, love one another. And yet Jesus is making the claim, and I'm about to give you a new commandment right now. I want you to love one another. How can he make such a claim when technically... God has been giving that command for millennia before Jesus even arrived on earth. The only possible solution to this question is that Jesus is not necessarily giving a new commandment, but he's giving them a new situation for that commandment to be made new. What in the world am I talking about? Well, maybe this silly illustration could help. I used this before, but I found it effective. Uh, About 10 years ago, smartphones came out. You guys remember when smartphones made their debut, and I remember when they started coming out, I knew I had to get one. I still remember to this day my very first smartphone. It was a Samsung Galaxy Nexus, right? You guys remember those? It was an awesome phone. It was the best phone I had at that point because prior to that, it was all clamshell phones. You guys remember the clamshell cell phones? This was my very first smartphone, and I remember having it for a little about over a year, you know, so it wasn't so brand new, and yet somebody at our church said, Pastor John, you got a new phone? And I was like, uh, no, I had it for a while now. It's pretty old. So, okay, let me take a look at it. So I let this brother look at my phone. And then he noticed some things about my phone that made him wonder. Uh, it's okay, buddy. It's my son. Um, he's like, oh, how come you didn't turn on this feature? How come you're not using this app? How come you're not using this function? 
And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? Yeah, see, this brother is very tech savvy in me. If you know anything about me, I don't know anything technologically advanced, which is why I have staff, right? This is the only reason why I have staff. No, I'm just joking. It's not the reason why I have staff, but you know, I'm very technologically inept, right? And for the next 15 minutes, he started showing me, orienting me of all the features and capabilities of my phone. And now a phone that's pretty old at that point transformed into a functionally new phone. Why? Because the phone was new? No, because I was made new. I had new knowledge that changed my relationship to the phone that enabled me to have abilities that I didn't have before that encounter with this brother. That is what Jesus does. Jesus encounters us in such a way that he changes us to where an old ancient law becomes functionally new in the sense that we're now able to do what we could not do before. We're actually able to love one another. We're actually able to do this miracle known as loving other people, especially other people in the Lord, you see? And the way Jesus does this is by giving us a new nature, giving us a new nature that enables us to do the miraculous, But how exactly does Jesus pull that off? Well, he tells us in verse 33 with this statement, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is able to give us a new nature because he is going somewhere that he tells us you cannot come. And to be honest, you and I would not want to come with him because where does he go? He goes to the cross, right? The cross. The gospel tells us God the Son, the eternal Son of God, came into the world as a human being, Jesus Christ, so he could go to the place where you and I deserve to go, but won't because he went there for us. He went to the cross on our behalf. And what happens at the cross? There God the Father holds back and he does not allow his love to be going towards the person crucified. That's what the cross is. That's what Jesus experienced when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because Jesus went for you, where you don't have to go, where he's, as far as he's concerned, you couldn't go, right? Now, all the love that was withheld from Jesus gets poured out into you. And just like a dead battery, once it's connected to a live one, comes roaring back to life, being able to do what it's normally functioning to do, which is to drive a car. So now your dead heart, my dead heart, once it's connected to the Father's heart through Jesus, comes alive and is able to do what it was destined to do, to love our God and to love his people. This is how the miraculous happens. This is how we're able to suffer for love, right? And the more we do, what happens? Odd Todd becomes less odd. Lame James becomes less lame. Judge Judy starts judging less. And they start becoming more like the love of the one who suffered for that love for them. Through you, through me. Do you see? This is why we need to love one another. Because the more we do as a community, the more we become like the one who is the true hope of the world, the one who is the source of all miracles and through it is able to bring hope and peace through a world so divided and so broken. Do you guys understand that? Do you guys get that? If you do, then let it begin with your commitment of prioritizing this thing that we're doing right now, of doing community in person, in presence of one another 
so that we can have the platform, the context, the construct needed to love each other the way our Savior loved us. This is the beginning of true hope in a world that has gotten so dark and so divided. May that be true of NCF and every church that calls Jesus its most precious treasure that it seeks out always. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us